0: Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the 58th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, President of Sensei Enterprises.
0: And I'm John Simic, Vice President of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is e Discovery Reflections from Retired Magistrate Judge John Fasciola. We're delighted to welcome today's guests. John M. Fasciola is a retired United States Magistrate Judge who formerly served in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. He authored over 700 opinions, many of them in e Discovery and in the impact of information technology upon Fourth Amendment principles. He's a member of the Sedona Conference Advisory Board and has received the Sedona Conference's Lifetime Achievement Award. He's an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown Law, where he teaches information technology and modern litigation in a course in evidence. Welcome, Judge.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Judge, there are still so many lawyers with no knowledge of e-discovery, or putting it kindly, they have very limited knowledge. How do we make e-discovery skills a part of every lawyer's toolkit?
2: I'm afraid we never will any more than we would make genomic medicine part of the toolkit of every general practitioner. All we can hope to do is to train a sufficient number of lawyers who will meet the needs of the society with reference to their services. As for those lawyers who uh, refuse to engage in that process and educate themselves, well, it's quite clear that they are now in the position where they may very well be accused of ethical deficiencies in their performances because of, they are new, now required by virtue of some amendments to the rules of ethics to have sufficient information in this field. So I suppose we will see over the next few years a process by which uh, those people who are interested and willing to commit time will grow in their abilities, while the rest will be left to one side. As for the ones left to one side, I don't know, but then again, I don't remember what happened to buggy whip manufacturers either when they became obsolete. <laughs> so I think that's where we are. My good friend George uh, Shosha estimates that maybe in America there are 500 to 1,000 lawyers who truly get this. I don't know if George's estimate is right. It seems about right. We can make that grow incrementally, but I don't think we can ever make it grow to the point where it won't be the entire profession. I think that would be unrealistic, and nothing I've seen in 17 years suggests to me that that's about to occur.
1: <laughs> I, I think you'd find that both John and I would agree with you. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, Judge, can you tell us a little bit about why you believe that health records, they pose such a challenge in, in
2: e-discovery? Well, I'm afraid what happened here was as we already uh, have seen in other aspects of our culture and our society, is when the technology arrived, the people who would use it did not know how to use it. And since they did not, the technology cannot be used to their advantage. To the contrary, instead of becoming a means to an end, it becomes an obstruction to accomplishing an end. There's nothing new here. I remember as a judge they would put a piece of software on my computer, and I would say, how does this thing work? And they say, well, Judge, there's a guide somewhere. That explains why the Barnes and Nobles uh, near our courthouse was always full of judges looking for manuals on Lotus Notes and work Perfect. <laughs> we haven't been very good as a culture and a society as to train people who do not know a technology how to use that technology. I would estimate that maybe I use what? Ten to twenty percent of the capacity of my computer? And that's pretty good. So all of this money was out there. Nature abhors a vacuum. These systems were bought, and the people who had to use them had insufficient training. As a result, what has been produced is is a, a real detriment to efficient use. We can't have clinicians sitting at a computer hitting the enter key hundreds of times so they can find a single blood test. Yet that's appears to be where we are, and the challenge is immense and it's going to require an enormous amount of training of uh, physicians and clinicians and coders and everyone else to get the system up where it's even of minimal usefulness.
1: Well, today we've seen the cost of e-discovery become so high, we actually see, because we represent a lot of small to mid-sized businesses, we've seen them just kind of look at the budget overall for litigating and decide to settle rather than litigate, even where they believe that they were right in the case. Do you think that these these high costs will drive all but the rich from the courts?
2: I'm afraid they will, and indeed they have. I mean, it's now estimated that we try, what, less than one percent of all the cases filed. Certainly as a magistrate judge for 17 years, I would imagine I spent 70 to 75 percent of my time settling cases. And certainly there are cases, all too many of them, where costs drive the result, not justice, not fairness, or any other consideration. That's a tragedy. It is a tragedy because I think we are in the process of driving the middle class out of the, the courts, I don't know how they can afford these costs unless there are immense amount of monies at stake, either to gain or to lose. So, in effect, the congressional desire that we enforce certain statutes uh, will go by the wayside. Those statutes will not be enforced for want of anyone to enforce them. And basically, the litigation we have now takes either of two forms. It is uh, so-called bet-the-company litigation with gigantic financial institutions battling each other or it is cases brought by plaintiffs whose lawyers are working on a contingent basis in the hopes of getting a substantial recovery and a substantial fee and to pay their expenses. Those are the two most common forms of litigation. All other types of litigation are probably in the process of disappearing. And e-discovery, I'm afraid, bears a significant amount of the blame for that. Hmm.
0: Well, in, in a recent podcast, you had mentioned the Electronic Discovery Training Academy, which our, our good friend Craig Ball is, is a part of. Can you tell our listeners a, a little bit about the Academy?
2: Yes. The idea behind the Academy is uh, not the traditional CLE program. It is a very intensive six-day program. It starts on a Sunday and ends on a Friday. He spoke to my dear friend Craig Ball. Craig never tires of saying something, which is this. Uh, Don't let anybody ever tell you you don't have to understand the technology to understand the law. You cannot understand the law unless you understand the technology. So Craig spends just about the entire two first days simply teaching about the technology of electronic discovery. On Sunday evening, the four of us, myself, Craig, Tom O'Connor, and Moira Grossman, do a mock meet and confer in a given case. That evening our students are introduced to coaches, wonderful lawyers from the District of Columbia usually, who serve as their coaches. They are coaching them towards a final meet and confer which will occur on that Friday and which will be done in the presence of of federal judges like me. In the meanwhile, there are intensive uh, coursework all day long, whether it's technical or legal. The idea behind it is to keep a small faculty so we get to know each other well and so that we as a faculty can make a, a thoroughly integrated presentation. So there are five of us who work nine and ten hour days for those six days. And at the end of the program, we test. Craig has tested the participants upon arrival and he tests them again upon departure. And this year we had the very exciting news that they had done as well as any class we have ever had. So it's, it's a remarkable program. I don't know if they're exhausted when they finish, but God knows I am. <laughs> uh, but it, is, it requires an extraordinary commitment on everybody's part, with financial and time, but we are all committed to doing it because the results are exactly what we hope to achieve. It's the same old story. You can't learn this stuff uh, as a dilettante. You know, it's not tips after shaving. You have to commit yourself intellectually and otherwise to do it. Hmm. Uh, it's so, a tough model.
1: It, it sounds like a, a immersion.
2: <laughs> yeah, because you're the poor complete... people who go through it have enough other words for it. One of which <laughs> is boot camp. Yeah, I was. But gonna, I'm, I'm proud I'm... to report that we now have reached the point where several of our students have become teachers. That is, I go to programs and they are the panelists, and that of course makes me bust all my buttons with pride. <laughs> well, That's great.
0: That's
1: great. <laughs> Now we we have often heard you referred to, and I'm chuckling a little as I say this as as one of the rock stars, judges of e discovery. Um, how did you attain that exalted status? Because they call you that all the time.
2: Yeah, well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the rock stars of my generation, God help us, are still around. <laughs> so if I'm a, if, if Nick Jagger's still a rock star. Well, I guess I qualify as well, <laughs> mainly because both of us are still perpendicular to the floor. I don't know where the author if that, got that notion, but the idea of rocks, I don't know what the cliche is, that you stand out, but it was for an article and it, it was a lot of fun. I I much prefer being called the Italian stallion, but... Um, well, you're not going to hear Italian, us call
1: you that on this podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not the... I, actually, I'm not an Italian stallion. I'm a Sicilian stallion, but... That, anyway, that's a higher rank. My w- yeah, it's much higher. <laughs> my wife doesn't take any of this seriously, needless to say, so it's a matter of some derision around here.
1: <laughs> well, as, as you know, uh, we are also married, and I think wives, uh, th- they do well to keep their husbands humble. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree, John? <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> oh. Try disagreeing, John.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I tried that once. It didn't go well. Uh- yeah. <laughs> So, Your Honor, uh, how can we integrate e-discovery in, in our law schools and and educate these these students that are that are going going through there so that they're prepared once they graduate to enter into this whole yeah. electronic world?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think the road forks in terms of of how to do it now. And I was a, a participant at a conference held actually on the second, the first Sunday in the year by the American Association of Law Schools, and this was the precise topic. It was a rainy, miserable morning, and I thought we'd be lucky to have more audience than panelists, and it was standing room only with professors from all over America. The discussion was a wonderful one, but we learned a lot of things from it. Bill Henderson from the University of Indiana showed us how the data showed that the, the graduates are not doing what lawyers did 20 years ago. They're doing very different things. They're more entrepreneurial in their approach because they have to be. They also are entering into technical fields that maybe lawyers didn't go into 25 years ago. So our graduates are going in different directions. Now, we could go either of two ways, which is have discrete courses like the ones I teach and Bill Hamilton teaches and Craig Boyle teaches and Maura teaches, more Grossman. Or we could try to integrate the topic into other subjects, such as civil procedure or evidence and contract formation. I think that's where the road forks, and there was no consensus in the room as to that issue. But in the meanwhile, I certainly believe that uh, a separate course in this area is valuable and useful to a large number of students. But in my view, that shouldn't deter the integration of these these topics into other aspects of this. Think about a course in civil procedure. I had a remarkable experience. Judge Pillar, she's now Judge Pillar, she was then Professor Pillar, she asked me to come teach a a couple of hours in our class on civil procedure at Georgetown. And I grabbed a book on civil procedure from the law uh, law book company and uh, read it. And I realized as I was going over it, that there were my notes from my class in civil procedure 45 years ago. <laughs> uh, so we have to figure out how to bring this kicking and screaming to the 20th century. How much time are we going to spend on interrogatories when we know they are rapidly disappearing? How much time are we going to spend uh, in evidence focusing on paper documents when 98% of all the communications on the face of the earth are digital? Those are the tough questions that are in front of us. And... Uh, uh, it's a very, very demanding, demanding question. Mm. I, for one, think the e-discovery training academy model makes a lot of sense. So you could make an argument for a kind of boot camp uh, at the beginning of the semester. Uh, Georgetown is already doing that, I think, in the area of finance. Because the law firms were screaming, you send us all these brilliant people and none of them know how to cash a check. <laughs> so... Mm. Uh, So the law school, Georgetown, focused on how to give their students a fundamental understanding of finance and accounting and management and so forth. So we'll have to see that. But the world is changing for our graduates. And I know with the students in my class in information technology, they were able to uh, market the skills they had picked up for summer and full-time jobs. And I I was very happy to see that.
0: Great. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Well, this is normally the spot in our show where we hear words from our sponsors. This potentially represents a unique opportunity for you. Digital Detectives is seeking sponsors. You can hear your advertisement right here. If you're interested, contact the team at LegalTalk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com.
1: Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today our topic is e-discovery Reflections from retired Magistrate Judge John Fasciola. Judge Fasciola is a retired United States Magistrate Judge who formerly served in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. We've heard you say how important it is to have a sense of humor as a judge. Can you tell us how that has helped you?
2: Well, I don't know. You can't improve on what Mark Twain said. He said he often found that a man didn't have any a sense of humor didn't have any sense at all. <laughs> so it's my father's favorite expression. And uh, I have always found that no one told me when I took the oath that I was supposed to be dull, and I have never felt any obligation to be so. <laughs> and in humor in the, in the proper place can, can make points, uh, uh, you know, with a rapier-like thrust that can't be made by a long, turgid uh, talk. So I've always felt that it's serious business, but it it is and should be seriously done. But by the same token, it, there are opportunities to see things and that wit and humor play an important role in permitting what may not be uh, observable. In one of my uh, opinions, I used the, the definition, Rostin's wonderful definition of chutzpah, and it might seem out of place, but it made the point. So I've always felt that humor is very much part of the, the tools that any human being has to have as you go through life, particularly mm-hmm. a judge in trying to explain things and understand things. And also, you got to admit, there's no one on earth more fun to make fun of than lawyers. It's almost like they have signs <laughs> on them. Make fun of such a bloody target out there, their formality <laughs> and their three-piece suits. It's, I mean, the, the answer to a, a judge's prayer, I mean,
1: <laughs> Well, you're making me very glad I never appeared before you, Judge. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we're well, well, too easy, too easy as
0: targets. Well, well, I'm, I'm glad. Now, now, Sharon, you just heard the judge say that I can make fun of you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's all yours, John. Take it away.
0: <laughs> well, we, we've also heard you say that a law firm that doesn't in, invest in professional development is heading for extinction. How does that relate to, to e discovery and the practice of law generally?
2: Well, generally, in the practice of law, it's think about it, if you would and try to identify a technology that any of us predicted would come in, come online five years ago. I mean, it's astonishing when you think about it. Uh, there are whole new ways of human beings. I mean, just what, a week ago, I saw one of the, uh, I think the Fortune 100 announced that it was, it was not going to use voicemail anymore because it found that the millennial generation used text messages and didn't bother to call each other. So there goes a form of communication that's transformed before our very eyes. So if you're running an enterprise, and the purpose of that enterprise is to provide legal counsel to a culture, to a society, to institutions, businesses in that society, how can you possibly do that if culturally and technologically you're not at one with the people you are purporting to give guidance to? I mean, it's absurd. You're speaking English, and they're speaking French. So I think that law firms have to be infinitely creative uh, and have to rely on innovation on new ways of doing things so that the people who are going to be running American businesses are comfortable with them. Uh, For example, I can't imagine anyone escaping from a business school worthy of the name without a solid grounding these days in analytics and data analysis and management of the technological enterprise. Well, if those people are the people coming out of the business school, isn't it reasonable to suppose that when they pick up the phone and look for a lawyer, that lawyer will have to be at least their equal in understanding the technology which is creating the legal problem that they have. And Therefore, I have to say, law firms who don't do that, I don't understand how they can have a future. uh, Any more than I think other businesses will have a future if they do not keep up culturally with how our society is changing so dramatically.
1: Well, I certainly agree with that, and uh, we see a lot of unfortunately, a lot of lawyers who are beginning to look like dinosaurs because they will not adapt, and and I fear for those who will not move into the future, and especially with technology. Uh, you've been quoted as saying that the future of law belongs to the creative, which I think John and I both agree with. But mm-hmm. we, we, it, there's lots of ways of being creative. Would you expand on what you think about how we need to become creative? Uh,
2: I think the first act uh, aspect of the creativity is the financial aspect of it. In other words, will the hourly model persist, or is there an alternative to it that can return a sufficient profit to the law firm without exhausting the financial resources of the party that's being served? So creative ways of packaging how legal services are provided. Part of that creativity is finding ways to make that delivery of those services as efficient as humanly possible using the technology. Um, So the first aspect of the creative is financial creativity. How can lawyers continue to provide the crucial services they do in a manner that doesn't uh, bankrupt the people they are serving? The second aspect of the creativity is to look at the way lawyers traditionally do things and ask if there are other ways to do them. Certainly, we are beginning to see uh, an emphasis among the profession in providing the service of information governance. So that particular field of endeavor, which was never a lawyer's business when I was practicing law, is now a crucial part of the business. So how do I look at the way this corporation keeps its records? And there are creative ways I can integrate into this principles of information governance and help them keep what they have to and throw out everything they don't. Uh, Again, I don't know if lawyers would ever think about that before. They would always be reactive to a problem as opposed to being proactive to trying to find out where the client's problems are and solving them before they become a litigation headache. The final aspect of the creativity would be try to figure out ways where legal rules and requirements that were adopted and came into force in a paper universe, how they can be adopted uh, in a New universe, and whether that is the manner in which you do privilege logs, the manner in which you take a very large data set and you it down to a more reasonable one by using the creative tools at your command. There is a part of a lawyer's tradition would say, well, that's not the way we do things. You know, we are committed to looking at every document because every document may be significant. Well, I'm afraid that's a luxury nobody can afford. So now the question is not to go to an extreme and throw everything out the window, but to say, okay, I've got this rule, and this rule requires me to tell the court such and such. How do I take this data and do that? And how do I do it creatively? How do I do it other than in the clumsiest and least efficient way possible? It's that kind of creativity.
0: Well. Well, Sharon and I believe that cooperation, transparency, they're so important in discovery. But we've we've really certainly encountered many cases where the atmosphere was very hostile, and there's a lot of hiding the ball. Do you think we're improving in those two areas? And and yeah, so what can be are. done? I
2: think primarily. I mean, every opinion I read, the judge is finding at the conclusion of her opinion saying, "You know, this whole thing could have been avoided if you had talked beforehand." And I don't know when lawyers are going to hear that, uh, because believe me, the judges are shouting it from the rooftops, case after case after case. Why did this take this long? Why didn't you talk? Why do you need all this stuff? What's going on here? So I, I just think that the judges are well past losing their patience with this. And certainly the emphasis on the rules amendments, on proportionality, on... Effective advocacy and the emphasis in the cases, again and again, on meeting and confirm I hope will have their impact on the bar if the bar will only read them. You know, I still remember uh, working with Richard Brayman on the Sedona Conference Cooperation and Proclamation and some of the emails and messages he got when he came out with it, which had lovely sentiments addressed in them, such as, drop dead over my dead body. But mm-hmm. uh, Richard Garvis, so he hit a nerve, didn't he? And from it came, I think, uh, a whole new, different way of looking at things. Is there resistance to it? Of course. It's very hard to change people's attitude overnight. But certainly in the uh, remaining my last few years as a judge, I certainly saw uh, that attitude becoming more prominent. I also found that it was interesting how much lawyers benefited from aggressive judicial management. It seems like they... They were more comfortable with it, with the judge's, for want of a better word, interference in the process at an early stage, before everybody went out and started to kill each other to say, well, what's this all about? So the emphasis in the new rules on aggressive judicial management, the significant role that concept played at the Duke Conference, the influence it had on the drafts of the rules, I think, I hope will play itself out the next few years.
1: Well, we we share your hope, and we want to thank you very much for joining us today. I, I want to assure you that no one would ever call you dull. <laughs> so, th- thanks for the Mark Twain quotes and all the other uh, comic references. Uh, you liven up uh, anything I don't you know present.
2: You might want to look an accurate quote. You know, I can't vouch for my old man. Maybe my my father was very good at making up things and attributing to other people. <laughs> so be very careful.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a pretty good characteristic at a at a father. It could be useful. I do remember that Mark. Twain... Wayne said something like, Congress is the only native criminal class, and that <laughs> seems about right, right. to me. <laughs>
2: that seems about
1: right too. Yes. <laughs> but thank you yeah. very much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure, a good conversation, and I think a lot of uh, good pointers for people who maybe have not had the opportunity to attend some of the sessions that you've taught over the years. Uh, just very entertaining and very uh, illuminating. Thank you very much for being with us today as our guest. Oh,
0: it was
2: my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes.
1: And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives.
0: Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com
2: and in iTunes.